Thank you. And it's really debatable whether I have more stuff than Jeff. We'll have to, we'll have to talk about that. Well, Easter is over. The lilies are gone. The candy is eaten. Even the last of the egg salad from the Easter eggs have disappeared. And the hoopla has died down. Nobody's wearing their fancy Easter outfit today. We are back to our old ways and our old routines. That's what we usually do when the excitement fades. On Friday, he died, and on Saturday, there must have been with the disciples that feeling of numbness which settles over the heart when it cannot accept what the mind is telling it. It's the same feeling we get ourselves when someone in the family suddenly dies, and we gather there together in the home of a relative. You've been there. Everyone feels kind of awkward. The conversation is strained, and no one can really be themselves. Death just seems to take our social breath away. All the normal things that someone would do when they came visiting seem kind of inappropriate now. You know, like pulling the chair out from under the nephew, or nobody tells jokes, and there's no shadow boxing with the teenagers. Just long faces and awkward silences. And it was that way for the disciples. Talk was, was both small and painful. Saturday was filled uh, with the images that were too painful to think about, but too recent to forget. Those three dark crosses, the spear that was thrust into their master's side. And now it's the day after the, the crucifixion. It was the day after the Jewish Sabbath. And so the men and the women who had followed their slain leader, it seemed like nothing much had changed. Buying and selling went on. Chants from the temple leaked out into the streets. Children chased each other, running around laughing. Sunday, which for the Jews is kind of like our Monday, everything was just as it was. Golgotha had been hosed down and was ready for another execution. People haggled over the prices, animals snorted in the courtyard, and that dead, cold dread that says, this was all for nothing, settled over them. Oh, he made great promises. He said he would always be there with us. Where is he now? Dead. Oh, there were rumors of an empty tomb. The women had come back after sunrise telling wild stories. But what can you expect when the pain is so great? Tears cloud the eyes, and a broken heart can make the mind hallucinate. It's just time to get away. Time to go somewhere, anywhere. How about Emmaus? This morning, I invite you Let's walk together with Cleopas and his friends, shall we? Cleopas and his companion decided to go home. It's easier to avoid talking when you're walking. And people have to get away sometimes when it hurts. Some people go to Florida. Some go around the block. Others go to a little diner where they can sit on a stool and overhear the world ignoring them. Some go to church to see if there's anything to it. But you've got to get away sometimes, don't you? Now, this isn't my first walk to Emmaus. I've been to Emmaus many, many times, and so have you. 
It's that temporary hiding place, the distraction, the change of scenery. It's the walk that we all take into cynicism when we discover that the noblest ideas of peace and love and freedom and justice can be twisted and destroyed by selfish, evil people. So Cleopas and his friend walk along the road to Emmaus, and on their walking, they notice their feet are you know, clicking up little clods of dust, and they pass the time talking about what happened and what might have been. They play that irresistible, sad little game, what if. If only. If only Judas hadn't betrayed them. If only Jesus hadn't created such a scene in the temple and got the authorities all riled up. If only Jesus had been a little more discreet, a little less political. If only, if only he had really been the promised one, the Messiah. Why did we even bother buying in? Speculating and love can be more trouble than it's worth. And then suddenly on our walk, we hear footsteps behind us, and we realize there's a stranger on our road intruding into our grief. We don't recognize him. He is not only a stranger, but someone who is totally ignorant of all that has happened in Jerusalem. And we are really just a little bit mad because if he's going to bother us, he should at least know what's going on. He could at least share the silence with us. Now he seems to be angry at us, scolding us for not knowing what's happening. Who is this man? He listens to our pain and our disappointment, and now it's his turn to do the talking, and he retells the story, but with a bigger frame. He begins to talk about the big picture, how everything in the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah being crucified, and he goes back to the real beginning of the story, back to Moses, back to the prophets, and he interprets the scripture for us. The story he tells, though, is bigger than we'd understood it, better and so much more beautiful. He doesn't end with death, but contains it. His words were just mesmerizing. He just walks with us and tells us a story big enough to hold all of our pain, our disappointment, and our broken hopes. At the end of that two-and-a-half-hour walk, we invited him to stay with us. There was just something about him. We asked him to stay a while. He comes inside. He breaks the bread. And suddenly, our hearts are on fire. It's the Lord, isn't it? Of course it is. What an odd and marvelous story. Luke tells of such extraordinary things in such ordinary ways. At the birth of Jesus, ordinary parents are on the run. No vacancy signs anywhere. We've got to sleep in the barn. Ordinary animals oblivious to what they witness. The reordering of history, the resetting of the spiritual clock from B.C. to A.D., God's little continental divide. But there is at least a heavenly choir singing their hearts out and wise men and shepherds. There is some divine punctuation in the Christmas story. But it's not that way in the post-resurrection stories. There is confusion, mistaken identity, and a whole lot more question marks and exclamation marks. Mary waits at the tomb and suddenly the gardener comes in. 
Oh, no, it's Jesus. Peter and his friends fish all night and catch nothing and see a stranger on the shore at daybreak. And he gives them good, suspiciously familiar advice about where to throw their nets. Is it Jesus? Of course it is. And now we have these two men shuffling toward a village that is both nowhere and everywhere. And at first, they don't recognize him. But when they break bread together, suddenly it happens. Why then? Why not before? Perhaps Luke is telling us that their failure to recognize him is consistent with their failure to recognize him when he was alive, to really, really understand him. But just as surely as they realize who he is, he vanishes. Why not stick around, chat a little bit, convince any who have lingering doubts? This is a story about a God who will not leave us alone, even when we are hurt and disappointed, even when it seems like the best and the brightest things in life have been destroyed. It tells us that when things don't turn out like we expect, don't just cast it aside as a failure, because God sees every strand in our life, and he knows how to weave them together for us. During the busy Passover week, there were two followers of Jesus, Clopas and his friend. We don't know much about them. This is the only time they are even mentioned in the Bible. They had an association with the disciples. They had put all of their hope in Jesus, but they had seen him crucified. They were sad and upset and did not understand it at all. They had heard the story of the ladies and the angels that he was alive, but they really didn't believe it. There are a lot of people like that today. Westchester is full of people just like that, that have heard of Jesus. They know that holiday that we call Easter, according to Christians, is when Jesus came out of the grave alive, but they're really not convinced of it. Grandma may have believed it and lived it, but they have not ever made a real commitment to God. And Jesus wants to join them on their journey too. You know, I am always surprised who Jesus came back to see. He could have done so many things in the hours and days following the resurrection. And if it were me, I would have come back to Pontius Pilate, you know, like your kids come into your bedroom at 3 o'clock in the morning and they're, they're breathing on you and they're like two inches from your face. I know you moms have had that happen. And, you know, you feel something breathing on you and you wake up and you open your eyes and there's somebody right there in your face. Well, I would have done that to Pontius Pilate. And when he opened his eyes, I would have said, boo. <laughs> I would have appeared to Caesar in Rome, and when he got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, there I'd be handing him his bathrobe. I would have walked into those Jewish leaders on the Sanhedrin, and I would have said, guess what? I'm back. But Jesus didn't do that. Interestingly enough, Jesus spent a great portion of his first day as the resurrected king just walking down a seven-mile stretch of dusty road to Emmaus with two relatively unknown followers. Now, I think this story is a parable as well as being historical. I think Jesus is modeling for us what he will continue to do throughout all of the ages. You see... We are all on that road. 
called the journey of life. And if we live long enough, life will be unfair to every single one of us. And we will find ourselves someday on that road, confused, scared, hurt, wounded, grieving. Like Cleopas and his friend, we need to know Jesus more fully, more intimately. We have a personal Jesus. He has always been the one to seek people on their life journey. Now, he could have appeared in powerful form in front of very large gatherings of people and showed them his hands and his side, and they would have known this is Jesus, the conqueror of death. But instead, he chose to come to two hurting people walking down the road of life. They were incredibly sad. They had hoped that Jesus the Messiah would change the world, and their hopes had been dashed. What does the future look like for followers of a failed leader? Their hope died with him. We were hoping he was the one. We were hoping. That phrase, we were hoping, it speaks volume. But those words are familiar, aren't they? We are all walking down a road that is littered with broken plans and dashed hopes. We were hoping we could make the marriage work. We were hoping he would pull through. We were hoping the CT scan wouldn't show cancer. We were hoping our finances would improve. We were hoping she could overcome that addiction. We were hoping he could stop drinking. We were hoping the depression would lift. And that list goes on and on and on. And some of us sometimes find ourselves in the strange position of not knowing what to hope for at some point in our life. And the good news is that hope doesn't have to die because Jesus is alive and can walk into your life and bring you hope. There is no place that we can go where Jesus can't find us. No place. He meets us on that road to Emmaus. He walks with us. He talks with us. He reminds us. He reassures us. He helps us make sense of things. He gives us peace. And he gives us eyes to see so that we can recognize Jesus. Now, when they arrived in Emmaus, Jesus wanted them to invite him in. <clears throat> he had walked seven miles, quoted countless scriptures, and now he waits for them. Did they really want him? He doesn't force himself inside. He doesn't push. And then we hear those three little words, stay with us, stay with us, come inside, stay with us. Now think about that. If they had not offered him a place, invited him in, there wouldn't be a story. Now in today's world, we don't take strangers into our homes. But first century hospitality was deeply rooted in biblical tradition. There was actually a mandate to welcome strangers. Every Jew knew the Deuteronomic command, do not mistreat the stranger. You shall love the stranger, for you were once a stranger in the land of Egypt. Hospitality was a biblical command. And in a world without Holiday Inn and the Hilton, it was pretty much essential. And Jesus still waits for our invitation to come into our hearts and our lives.
Now, once he was invited in, something changed. He broke the bread in Cleopas' home. Now, that's a little weird. Think about that. Cleopas was the host. He should have been the one to break the bread. But once you invite Jesus into your life, he enters and he begins to lead your life. And like them, you feel and know the presence of the living Lord. So at that point, they recognized Jesus. And then he was suddenly absent. Just three years ago, we all began this very long ordeal of surviving a worldwide pandemic. Now, initially, we did this through absence, no contact with many of those that we love. But it really wasn't a total absence. There were other ways to connect. We began to talk on the phone, to write letters. And I confess, I had never used Zoom before the pandemic. And I had to learn how to use Zoom and FaceTime to stay in touch. We learned that fellowship doesn't always depend on our ability to see someone in the flesh. Even though we couldn't physically touch those we love, we could still talk. We could still be in communion with them. How about when you look for God and you can't see him or sense his presence? That can be a dark place to be in. And it is hard to live in that tension between presence and absence, between the journey and the destination, between the now and the not yet. But it is in that creative space that we actually encounter Jesus. It's in that space we discover, like Cleopas and his friend, that we are not alone. We are never alone. So what is this story really about? It's about being alive with Christ and in Christ. In the final analysis, it's about life. Did you know that scientists have studied the mineral and chemical composition of the human body? That's right. The, the Bureau of Chemistry and Soils, I don't know why them, have calculated the chemical and mineral composition of the human body, which is oxygen, car carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, and less than 1% of potassium, sulfur, sodium, chlorine, magnesium, iron, and iodine, with little trace quantities of fluorine, silicon, manganese, zinc, copper, aluminum, and arsenic. Yeah. Your skin is really your most valuable asset. It's worth about two bucks. So if we took all of these chemicals and we sold them on the common market, it would be worth about $4.50. So add it up, you're worth less than $5. Sorry. <laughs> now I want you to take a moment this morning, and I want you to take your fingers and put them at the base of your thumb. Go ahead, take a moment, put them at the base of your thumb. Let's all be quiet and still for just a minute. And what do you feel? You feel your pulse. You feel the mystery of the biological life beating through your $5 worth of chemicals and minerals. Do you understand how that works? Do you understand how $5 worth of chemicals and minerals adds up to you or the person sitting next to you? Easter is about the power of life, the power that makes $5 worth of elements absolutely 
priceless. Easter is about the power that gave you that pulse, calling you by name and promising that long after your pulse stops, that power will go on. It's called eternal life, but it doesn't start after your pulse stops. You see, we all know that we are worth more than $5. We know that we are worth more than the sum of our parts. And that more is what Easter is all about. The resurrection addresses that universal longing to tap into that more. You might call it meaning, you might call it peace, you might call it purpose. St. Augustine called it the longing for God, the restlessness that only finds peace in him. Theologian Paul Tillich called it the ground or the power of being itself. Philosopher Zoran Kierkegaard called it the leap of faith that stops all anxiety. We are all seeking that one way or another. We all want to know that more. We all want to know God. Easter, the resurrection, is your answer to that longing. It is knowing that death is not the end and that a pulse alone is not living. In the movie, The Sixth Sense, you can only see that movie twice because once you know the ending, it changes how you see the whole thing. The ending is shocking. And if you don't know the ending or you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, but it came out in 1999, you had your chance. <laughs> so, to spoil the ending, Bruce Willis is dead. Bruce plays a psychologist trying to help a young boy who sees dead people. And it turns out that Bruce is one of the people who is dead. And after you see the movie the first time, and then you watch it the second time, knowing the ending, it becomes so obvious that he's dead. His wife doesn't look at him or interact with him. No one really talks to him except this young boy. But the story of Jesus is the exact opposite of the sixth sense. When you get to the end, Jesus isn't dead, but alive. The gospel is the good news that the hero of the story is alive and well, and it's all about him. It's about pointing to our need for him. It's about his coming and that he's going to pay the ultimate sacrifice and about his resurrection. And when we are frustrated or discouraged or we can't see or feel God's presence, we need to focus on this because we already know the ending of the story. Easter is that promise that the power that gave you that pulse will never, ever leave you. The power that raised Jesus from the dead can raise you from despair. And that same power knows your name and is still doing a good work in you and in this church and in the world. Easter is the promise that nothing in your past, present, or future has the ultimate power to define you. You are all defined by the light of God that flows through you and through all creation, making all things new. This sign is Latin. I can't really say it. I don't know Latin. But it's a Latin, Latin phrase. 
And it says, bidden or unbidden, God is present. The sign has been hanging in my office, every office I've had for the last 35 years, bidden or unbidden, God is present. The risen Christ walks unseen along each one of us. We have an invitation to become present to each other and ourselves and to God in new exciting ways, to honor new realities, to extend radical hospitality and unconditional love, to walk beside each other on that road where hope is born because Jesus will keep showing up. After Jesus left Cleopas and his friend, they returned that very same day back to where they came from, their community of faith, to share the good news and to claim a renewed sense of joy and hope. Soon the Holy Spirit comes to empower the disciples to do mighty acts. There are mighty acts for each one of us in our future to do in the name of Christ as we become that touchable Jesus for others and as the ones who have been touched by the risen Christ. Pray with me, my friends. Gracious God, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see you. Turn our despair into hope, our darkness into joy. Help us to know that your grace is sufficient for all that we endure and that we are never alone. Help us to be your Easter people as we become a fearless church in a scared world. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As my time as your minister of pastoral care comes to a close, I leave with a very full heart. Thank you for sharing your journey with me. My prayer for you is found in the words of the Apostle Paul. May you know the depth, breadth, width, and length of the love of God and may you be filled with the fullness of that love as you continue to make Jesus known. God bless you.